little series on community today by looking at community according to Jesus. Last week we kind of took this big picture approach and looked at commu- community according to scripture and, and kind of from beginning to end, how is the community of God uh, portrayed and what are the metaphors. Uh, community is a pretty popular idea these days, I feel like. Everybody's looking forward or talking about it or you know, advertising that their product or organization is going to be the best. And um, you have uh, the Mensa community. Anybody ever heard of the Mensa community? It's for the top 2% smartest people or highest IQ people in the world or whatever. I'm not a member of that group, actually. Um, you have the CrossFit community. You have the feminist community. You have the Young Republicans. You have, you know, whatever. Everybody's looking for community. We looked at a, or Camille and I watched a movie this week uh, where one of the main characters was the president of the KKK back in the 70s. And, you know, ta- and he just talked about how, like, when I joined, I never, I, for the first time in my life, I never felt alone. You know, you have people joining communities, searching for connection. And you have people that kind of just have their unofficial communities, like friends that all dress and act the same and like the same stuff or vote the same way, because those are just the easiest relationships. And then, and then in this, I'm a little slow uh, to kind of pick up on this, but then you have people that kind of, I think if you put a gun to their head, would say, I don't actually want community. Like, that's why I live where I live and live the way I do is because I don't actually want uh, to be a part of this, like, big thing, this big group where people know my business or leave me, leave, don't leave me alone. You know, we don't want around people around us that much, and we don't want neighbors. We don't want... It, 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 we want our space. And so, the, you know, there's kind of, in light of these two sides of community, the, the one side where folks gather, you know, around some arbitrary thing, their sexual orientation, their politics, their workout style, their own intelligence, or people who just don't like community or don't feel any, any need for it. Like, I've, I've had so many people since I come to Big Rapids say, like, I don't want neighbors. Or you always say we need people, but I don't need people. It's just me and Jesus. And so in light of these kind of, this kind of lay of the land, uh, I think it's super crucial for us as Jesus followers to see what Jesus said about community, uh, what he has to say about it, what did he have in mind, what would it look like today. So I have three points for us uh, this morning. Community, according to Jesus, is a God-made reality. It's scruffy, and it's family. Community, according to Jesus, is a God-made reality. It's scruffy, and it's a family. So let's dive in. Turn with me to uh, John 13. If you're already in John 15, just flip over a page to the left. Uh, we're going to look at the, the divine reality, the God-made reality that, that biblical community is. Jesus, in this, the context of this passage, he's just about to go to the cross. Uh, and John, John spends a huge bulk of his gospel here uh, talking about the last words of Jesus to his disciples right before he died for them. Uh, it's called the Farewell Address. He's in the upper room. Uh, and, he, and he gives them three chapters of teaching. And then he prays for them for a whole chapter, and then he goes out and and dies for them. And Let me read uh, John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So in his final words, his parting thought to his disciple uh, is to love each other, love one another. How? The same way that Jesus loved them. This is how people will know that people who follows Jesus is how they love their fellow disciples, the other Jesus followers. The loving community amongst Jesus, Jesus' followers is something that is based on, it's founded on the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
It's a, it's a God reality. It's a Jesus reality. It's not based on uh, a pastor or a building or a tradition uh, or a political view. It's based on the person and work of Jesus. And you'll notice, it's, I said it's based on his life, death, and resurrection. It's not just based on his death, because uh, we, see, we see how Jesus lived on the earth. He lived full of the Holy Spirit, the perfect human. He lived the human life the way it's meant to be lived. And how did he live? How did he love his disciples? He lived with them intimately. He walked and talked and slept and ate and worked and rested and everything with them. He didn't just show up to die and then die as kind of like a distant sacrifice or a tragic hero. No, first he like went on long desert walks with them and cooked them food and was just present to them. And sometimes, I don't know, I find myself guilty of this. We can just miss the staggering disparity, the staggering gap between who Jesus was and who the disciples were. Like the incredible like condescension. The, the word of God made flesh, through whom everything was made that was made, in whom everything holds together that exists, is now like cooking fish with a bunch of scruffy dudes. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. So yes, he died on the cross, but he also ate like a thousand meals with these frustrating, slow-to-believe disciples. He walked hundreds of miles through the desert. He asked hundreds of dumb questions. He answered a hundred, did I say ask? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't ask dumb questions. He answered dumb questions. And then he went to the cross to them. He literally, for them, he literally loves his people to death. And the word to his followers is that if you follow me, you should love people like that. And depending on how you're wired, it, you know, that, that, might, that might not sound great. Like, you, you, you know, the tragic hero, I think, is a trope that's very popular. Like, I'll take a bullet for someone, but just, like, don't ask me to, like, mow their lawn or let them borrow my lawnmower or something like that. Or we have the other side where, you know, I'll have fun with you and do stuff with you, but just, like, you know, don't actually make me talk about sad things or listen to your problems. Well, I want to see uh, again uh, in our sermon text, flip the page over to John 15, verse 9, what we read. John 15, verse 9. Again, this is part of Jesus' final words. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Community is founded on the incredible love we see within the Godhead of the Trinity, within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As God the Father loved Jesus, so he loves us. So Jesus is inviting us into this Trinitarian love. And the incredible truth of Scripture is that at the center of all reality, the entire universe, is this Trinitarian God, this Trinitarian community of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that God is one and he exists in three persons. And within the Godhead, the triune God of the universe, there is this perfect, glorious, never-ending, overflowing love between each person of the Trinity. And out of that love exists everything, was the overflow of everything. God didn't create us because he was lonely, because he's existed for forever in perfect Trinitarian community. And out of that community, out of that love, flows everything. The, the analogy that we have on our human level is having kids. Like, the whole idea is that in a healthy marriage, you come together, and out of that love comes literal offspring. It's the same idea. God is intrinsically, by nature, 
a community or relational. It's his very essence, like his, his, the nature of his being. And then out of this relational reality, he created humans who bear his image, this relational paradigm. We bear that image of our creator, God and Father. So as his image bears, just like God, we are relational. We are dependent. Who God himself exists in interdependence within the Trinity. And just one of the most staggering verses in all of scripture is uh, in the beginning when God is creating everything, he says, over everything, it is good. He made it, he said it, and it was, and it was good. Until, like a record scratch, he makes man, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And that's pre-sin, that's like pre-fall, like when everything was perfect and untainted, he looks at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. The only thing that God said that wasn't good was a man alone. And this is, this is, the crazy thing is that this is pre-sin, which means that the, the relationship, the fellowship between God and Adam didn't, didn't have that sin gap in it. Like, it, it wasn't separated. Like, it, this makes me so uncomfortable to say out loud, but, like, God could look at Adam in perfect relationship between them and say, it's not, it's not enough. Like, he needs other humans with him. It's not good enough to be alone. We're not meant to be alone. We're not meant to be autonomous. We deny our image-bearing nature if we seek to live that way. I think it's one of the reasons why anxiety and depression and suicide are all skyrocketing in our, our culture, because we've denied, we've like resisted uh, what the Bible teaches is, is true about being a human, which is that we need deep, interpersonal, dependent connections and relationships, trusting relationships. We've tried to, you know, be true to ourselves, or find our truth or do what seems right to us, and it's literally killing us. Jesus says, as the, as the Father has loved me, so he has loved us. And so we enter into this love through Jesus. We get access to the infinite universe-creating love through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then he calls us to remain in his love. How do we do that? Well, Jesus tells us really clearly next. Jesus says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. The way we experience this tr Trinitarian love, the three-part love of God, is loving other Jesus followers and being loved by other Jesus followers. The community of God's people is a divine fact because it's, it's based on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and the nature of God himself. This is freeing. This can be freeing or this could be uh, kind of binding. You know, if you're someone who doesn't like community or the thought of being fully known and fully loved sounds like uh, creepy or something, then this might feel a little, a little heavy-handed. Uh, or if you're on the other side where you crave community and it's something that you pursue, then uh, it, it can also be, it can be humbling <laughs> that it's not, it's not something that we achieve. And I just got to take a hot second and, and confess to you guys, because uh, this truth, this God-made reality of community, uh, I, I believe is something that, while of course I believed like theologically or whatever, I think has not really shaped my actions or interactions. I've, as I've studied community the past month, God has really convicted me uh, just kind of about some messed up ways that I've approached community, and, uh, and I'm pretty positive that I think it's had some effect, uh, if you'll indulge me a confession here, some, a negative effect on our life together. Um, there's this book, I highly recommend it to you, it's called Life Together, 
by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's very small, uh, but if you know you're annoyed of like trendy uh, community books by hipster pastors, this is like decidedly not hipster. Like it's written in the 30s, very like you know German language and stuff, uh, but very intense. He uh, he lived in a communal living situation for a long time under in Nazi Germany, uh, so he m deeply embraced Christian community. And I've read this passage like like 20 times, and it slays me every time. Uh, let me, I'm going to read it to you. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it has sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. Because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ, long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ that we may participate in. It's pretty brutal. Uh, it might be too long to like fully embrace, but that, let me just read that last part. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal that we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. So church, I believe that uh, I'm, I've, I've probably to some degree have heard us as a body through my community wish dream. Uh, I love community. Uh, if I'm speaking honestly, like, I'm, I feel so lonely, you know? Like, you guys are, like, why I'm here, right? You know, I, Big Rapids, I didn't know existed until. Um, and I feel like I put a lot of that pressure on you uh, to try to meet my, my wish dream. Uh, or I put pressure on myself to try to, like, realize the wish dream of community according to my, my ideals. And I think it, you know, it led me to be angsty and struggle for joy and probably felt pretty scary. <laughs> To, to some of you, some of you guys, and so I, I ask for your forgiveness. Because the community of Jesus followers is a God-made reality long before we uh, tried to actually live out the body. It's just a fact uh, because of God and what he's done. We receive what God is doing here, and we seek to be obedient uh, to community according to Jesus and not anybody's wish dream. So God help us that if it's my wish dream or my ideal, uh, that would drive us for, forward. And I believe that building up our community as a church family is the way forward, but I want us to, with gratitude, receive uh, the community that God wants to, God wants to build here uh, and, and not in what timeline he wants, to, he wants to build it. Another thing I've been praying about is the way in which we talk about community here. I feel like I've been a little slow to this because uh, I've been in other churches or read books where community is talked about with a lot of like hope and excitement and joy and good news. Uh, like if people just understood how good it would be, then people would want it. Uh, but I don't, I don't, and I try to do that. I've tried to do that here a lot, I think. Uh, but I, I don't know if that's really going to do it for us. Like when knowing our culture and, and how a lot of us are wired, because I, I think we're actually kind of scared of being fully known or we feel deep insecurity and discomfort around other people. And so for us in our culture, I think the, the call to Christian community, according to scripture, is, is less of a like, visionary call to something incredible and beautiful, kumbaya, and I, I think it's more like a call to obedience to our king. It's a call to come and die to ourselves and our preferences 
uh, and, and obey Jesus by, by loving, loving other Jesus followers. It's a call to step into the reality of this God-made community uh, just because it's a fact and because Jesus calls us to do it and he's our king. The next thing we see about community is that it's scruffy. We will just like jump ship on all visionary ideals, flip over to Mark 3. Jesus spent a lot of time with 12 guys. His grand plan for changing the world was these 12 guys. Just He did other things, he preached broadly, but his discipleship with the 12 guys was the backbone of his ministry. You always see him leaving the crowds to get away with his disciples or calling his disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side. And he's always trying to get alone with his, with his 12, 12 boys uh, to teach them, to be with them, to rest with them. Uh, so Mark, <clears throat> Mark 3, verse 13 through, uh, through 19. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 designating, he appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name something, boat, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I just want us to consider this list of 12 guys, Jesus' inner circle, the people that he did life with every day. Like, think about the people you do life with every day uh, or times where you've lived life closely. Like, you, you know, people that you would see before you've had coffee in the morning or something like that, or you'd have to, like, wait for the toilet, you know, because they're in there or something like that. So first, you have Simon Peter, who's this, who was the ringleader, but also kind of an idiot and a hothead. Uh, he was always blurting out stuff, and he, like, whips out a sword and cuts off someone's ear when Jesus is arrested. And, uh, and then you have John, the Apostle John, who's, like, the most cuddly, lovey-dovey guy in the Bible. Uh, I mean, if you read, we just read his account, right? And what does he say for, like, four chapters? Love one another, love one another. And you read his letters to the church. Dear children, let us love one another. And there's also this part where it talks about how he leaned against Jesus, literally cuddled with Jesus to ask to ask Jesus a question. So, like, what, what would it be like for Peter and John to, like, do life together, you know? Like, what did John think when Peter starts cutting someone's ear off and stuff? You have people who are kind of, like, justice and truth and fighter, you know, wired people, and then you got the lovey-dovey people. And how do those people interact, you know, typically? Like, they don't, you know? Like, both seem evil or foolish or sinful or, you know, or whatever. Like, people who are lovey-dovey seem like they're soft on truth and the fighters need to, you know, write angry blog posts. And the lovey-dovey people look at the people and they're like, we're supposed to love each other, you know, and then they, you know, enable people in their sin or something like that. So we have different personalities, but it gets way worse. First you have, uh, in verse 18, Matthew, who we've looked at in our series through, uh, through Matthew, through his gospel, where he's a tax collector which meant that he was a Jewish man who had bought the right to extort money from his own country, from the Roman Empire. So he was getting rich off the people who were oppressing his country. And then, a little ways down, same verse, Simon the Zealot. Like, it's not an accident that, these, that you know, we know about these people. Zealots were Jewish people who were going to make 
Israel great again by violence and force. They were freedom fighters, or probably to the Romans, they would have been classified as terrorists. You see some potential tensions, especially before coffee. You have a guy that was literally willing to die to overthrow Rome, and you have a guy who was on the payroll getting rich from Rome. That's crazy. Imagine what conversations might have been like. It's, it's impossible for me to overstate the intense difference of postures that this would have been. It's like if, if Jesus were to do his ministry today, and we're like, Jesus, who are your disciples going to be? It's like, mm, I think I will start uh, with Ben Shapiro. He's got a good platform and all that. Great, who's next? How about the AOC? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Like, what, what would that look like? Three days, life on life, you know, having coffee together. How would that go? It would be that volatile. And I love bringing up politics in sermons because it makes all of us uncomfortable somehow. You feel those, like, deep, deep gut reactions. Like, that deep, like, that ain't right. Like, those people would not hang out. My point is this. Community, according to Jesus, is based on him and not our common interest or chemistry or how, how well we agree with each other on secondary issues. There's a difference between friendship and biblical community. Friendship is based on chemistry and common interests. C.S. Lewis says you can summarize friendship, and I think this is good, this is true. You can summarize friendship in the words, me too. One of the best experiences of friendship I have, I've ever had was with this guy named Ethan down in Louisville. We met at church, and then we started carpooling to this men's training every Thursday morning, and you know, there's one time I was like, yeah, when I'm writing a paper or studying, I like to listen to this like really obscure rock band that does this like instrumental atmospheric rock. It helps me study. And he's like, are you talking about God as an astronaut? And I'm like, no way. You listen to them too? It's like super obscure band. And then he like mouth guitared one of their most famous like guitar riffs, like just like right there in the car. That was the kind of guy he was. You know, he liked pizza and end of the world movies and watching the World Cup at the local brewery. And, you know, it was just early morning coffee discussions. It was just like effortless. You know, we had this great chemistry. But as you can see, in Jesus's community, there was lots of space for very, very, very different people to do life together. What became more true than Matthew's extortion and Simon's violence and nationalism was the fact that they were disciples of Jesus and their identity was based on that which is why probably one of the top, sweetest parts of being in Big Rapids is my relationship with Jeff Fulmer. We have statistically like almost nothing in common. Like we're different, different ages, different backgrounds, different education, different interests. Uh, I can't fix a thing, you know, to save my life. He has to, I have to ask him a bunch of stuff. Different stages of life. He's a grandpa. I'm like 20 months into fatherhood. But I love that guy. You, you're there. I don't need to talk about you in third person. We've been some, through so much together, following Jesus together, working together, all that stuff, and it's because we're both following Jesus. The next thing we see about community uh, in this passage is in verse 14. He appointed the 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him. I'm going to stop there. Community in Jesus is scruffy, partially because of the mix of all over the place, but also because it's the group that gathers around Jesus and like is actually together. You know, like if Ben Shapiro and the AOC just had to like, you know, pass the peace on Sunday and nothing else, they, they probably could fake it. You know, they probably could like get, get away without, you know, coming to fisticuffs or whatever. But one of the marks of the community is that they, uh, they're with Jesus together, that they are with him. 
I've never had a, uh, a friend like Ethan, like he, he's one of the closest, sweetest times of friendship in my life, uh, but he's, he's not my community because uh, he lives in Louisville. Community, according to Jesus, requires people to be together. And in our day and age, uh, we don't literally follow a you know, Middle Eastern rabbi around. It, it, it plays out in a local church. Because we can pick friends, we can find other people, other Christians that we jive with, that you know, we have the Me Too you know, going on. Um, but the local church is where real biblical community, and, and the only Me Too required for biblical community is, is Jesus. And the local church is important because when we jo- join a local church, we, we submit to God in what it is and who it is, like who the members are and who the leaders are. We're allowing God to pick. Like we're, we're, we're stepping off the like out of the control panel and like who we like and who we can be friends with. And we're saying, we're just like in a family, like you don't get to pick your family. Even when it's scruffy, even when, you know, you have these huge differences. Just like in marriage, you know, your spouse... Uh, was ordained by God because of his or her strengths, but also because of his or her weaknesses. And I would say your spouse's weaknesses are one of the main ways that God works to sanctify you and heal your soul and make us whole. And the same is true of church community. The weaknesses, the limits, the whatever, the downside of whatever the real life, flesh and blood, gathered saints uh, in, in a place are is on purpose. The first time I experienced this was uh, in China when I joined a house church, you know. It's legal to be a Christian or have a church there. Um, and so there weren't, wasn't a lot of options. And it was really great for the first six months. And then some conflict arose. And you know, I was like 23 and even younger than dumber than I am now. Uh, but I remember just being like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I hacking? Like, who, are, who, who, who even are these people? You know, they're like from all these different countries and like, you know, it just seems so random and arbitrary. Like, why, why would I, like, go through all this pain and emotional turmoil with these random people? And it was, I was, like, at lunch with some people uh, from the house church, and it was, like, as I was, like, saying that out loud, actually, that's how young and dumb I was, um, it, was I, it was, like, God said, like, they're not random. <laughs> you know, it's just, like, duh, they're not random. Like, I've gathered those people in that house church, and uh, it was the first time kind of like feeling the limits of like who the church is and what we had to go through and just like staying there, just like doing it. The people in your church are not ar- arbitrary. It's not just a matter of replacing them. Uh, they've been selected specifically by God for our good, for our joy, for our growth. I've, he- I've heard, and I hope this is encouraging, because I've heard lots of people say like, oh, they wouldn't want to hang out with someone like me. Uh, they, they want people their own age, or I'm not married and don't have kids, so I can't, or whatever, basing, you know, the fellowship of the saints on, you know, common interests or stages of life or something like that. But biblical community is ultimately just based on identifying with Jesus, and when we come together across those differences, it highlights and elevates the, the thing that we do have in common, the thing that we can connect over, which is the way of God in following Jesus. You don't have to apologize for being old or single or tired from having so many babies or uneducated or not that good at conversation because, like, you have been put in a church family by the God of the universe and you have something to offer. Even in your weaknesses, you have something to offer. And lastly, 
uh, community according to Jesus' family. Just because it flows so smoothly out of this passage, we're just going to revisit this real briefly. Look at verse uh, 20, Mark 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house and a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So Jesus is out doing ministry, filled with the Holy Spirit, perfectly nestled into the love of the Father, obeying him perfectly, and his biological family thinks he's crazy. So that should be good news. If your family ever thought you were crazy, they thought the same of Jesus. Jesus' family did too. But then skip over to verse 31. Mark 3, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was, was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will, God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Again, it's impossible to overstate how radical this would have been. I mean, it's radical, I think, to us now, uh, but back in Jesus' day and age, because family was just so much more than just, like, the folks that, you know, you had birthday cake with or, you know, celebrated the holidays with. It would have been your primary identity, your primary way of, like, understanding the world. It would have been more important than your spouse, your biological family would have been, more important than your job. Your job probably would have been in your family, would have been in the family business. You didn't, like... You, know, you never had people asking you, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, what are you best suited for? Like, everybody knew what you're suited for. It was whatever the family did. And, that w- and back at the time, that wasn't oppressive. Like, all these movies about people throwing off the limits of their family and marrying whoever they want or doing whatever job they want. Like, those movies didn't exist then. Like, they, it was a grounding, beautiful thing to just, like, have a place in your family. But then Jesus comes along and says that his disciples, the people who do God's will, are his true family. Like, he, he like kind of ignores his, his mother and brothers. Like, he snubs them and doesn't go out to them because he's looking at his disciples. Bi- biological families are a huge blessing, and there's all kinds of scripture about how to love them well and honoring our parents and all that stuff. But here Jesus is talking about community with people who are aligned according to the kingdom according to Jesus' way of life. Like, how many grandmas are going to be okay with you opening up her grandkids to the foster care system and letting foster kids into your home? Or how many dads are going to like his little girl marrying some guy who wants to plant a church in Iraq or revitalize a church in Big Rapids or something like that? That was a joke. But let's make it less extreme. You know, you, you skip a family birthday party because you prioritize your gathering with your church family or you opt for reaching your neighbor's uh, with, with your church community on mission over heading to the beach with your parents or you say no to helping your family because you're prioritizing loving the brothers and sisters in your local church and none, none of those are like you know rigid rules like you can never go to the beach or never go to a birthday party or anything like that but my point is like well like what is the priority like who who is our true family according to our truest identity as Jesus followers as sons of God Jesus' mother and brothers were concerned. He was upsetting culture, upsetting the status quo. He's making the family look bad, causing all this hubbub. And maybe your, your family is also part of uh, a church family, and praise God for that. But I just want us to behold Jesus himself, that according to Jesus himself, the community of his disciples 
took priority, who took precedence over his mother, over his biological family. And we, we've seen passages where he says, whoever doesn't love me more than their family isn't worthy of me. And Jesus like embodies that. This is Jesus embodying that. If we follow him, we follow him into this. And that, it sounds scary and hard on one hand, because we love our families. It's not bad to love your families. But just consider that Jesus, the, the eternal word of God, sustainer of all things, wants you in his family. He, he, he opens the invitation for you to be his mother and brothers by doing the will of God and following him. So there is some loss in making Jesus and his followers our primary family or community, uh, but there's infinite gain. Infinite gain is the God of the universe loved you literally to death. I feel like uh, the way forward for us as we explore community is just to be super honest. I feel like we were able to do that a little bit on Tuesday and CG, just like, where are you at with community? Because um, to just fake it or to say the churchy answer isn't going to get us anywhere. And so I would just, as we look at community according to Jesus, uh, I would just invite you to, to consider, like, what do you think? What do you feel? What does your heart say? Like, what do you want right now? Like, do you want to get out of here and run? Or do you want to join another church? You know, whatever. Just be uh, be curious about how you feel and what you want and, and what's coming up in in your heart especially if it's afraid if you're afraid because uh, this week I, I didn't invite you to sit with this question just cut some time out in the car or wherever sit with this question how would I feel about community if I wasn't afraid how would I feel about community if I wasn't afraid this is just a thought exercise just ask the Holy Spirit, what, what will my life be like if I wasn't afraid when it comes to, to biblical community? See what he says. See what kind of things come to mind and what, uh, what kind of dreaming might, might come out of that. The invitation to us is to be a part of Jesus' family, to have him uh, love us and to be covered in the security of his, of his love. We know that he loved us. We know that his invitation to community, while scary, is infinitely good. Uh, because we can see him on the cross uh, appealing for our sin, forgiving our sins and our selfishness and everything that would cause community uh, to be scruffy. Let me pray. Father God.